Europe doesn't want to do anything clearly. Europe has no interest to be involved in this at all. Uh, the United States is weak. The United States is, is not really uh, have any appetite to send American soldiers anywhere to fight. Uh, so uh, it might have been a combination of what he thought to be demographic weakness, uh, concern over the expansion uh, of the EU and potentially NATO to his borders, and uh, you know, also the uh, the fact that maybe they're concerned about something that's going on domestically. I, there's a whole lot of factors involved here. I don't think he would have done this unless he would have got uh, China's blessing. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my favorite co-host, Lloyd Graff. Today's podcast is part two of our series discussing the current state of the global energy supply and how it ultimately relates to the war in Ukraine. Our guest is Dr. Andrew R. Thomas, business professor at the University of Akron and author of several books about geopolitics in Eastern Europe and the world's energy economy. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Andrew, now tell us where Ukraine fits into this. I guess I'm a little kind of blown away by how people have been uh, reacting to the invasion of Ukraine. I, you know, it started eight years ago when, when Putin rolled in and nobody did anything. Uh, the Obama administration, Joe Biden, the vice president, they didn't do anything. Uh, they took Crimea. They, they've been fighting a low grade. Why did they war. not do anything? Because it was already unpopular that we were in Afghanistan and Iraq. Or was it because, I mean, they still could have done sanctions, right? So there was talk about that. And I think they threw some sanctions out there to kind of placate the media and, and, and some of their supporters that they were doing something. But there was no consequence uh, for, for Russia when they went into Ukraine. And there hasn't been one in the eight year war that they've been fighting there. It's only until they really ratcheted up the violence in the last week that now people seem even to, to, to realize, oh, this has been going on for a long time. And, and it's it's not just the war. I mean, there was a shoot down of a, of a Malaysian Airlines flight that took place. People forget that. Killed everybody, blew the plane out of the sky. No sense sanctions, no investigations, no nothing. So when you can get away with blowing up commercial airliners and invading whole countries and grabbing territory, and there's no repercussions from the United States, from any of the European powers, what, what's, what's the messaging there? And so Putin had always said, he said for, for almost 20 years now, that they will not allow NATO buildup on, on the borders of Russia. And they just refuse to let that happen. They've been saying that. And I'm not really surprised this is going on. Uh, a lot of people are, I guess. I'm just not one of them. 
And, you know, the question is, to what extent does this, I mean, for our discussion here, what does this, what does this mean for global energy? Well, it's just going to put a lot more unpredictability into the system. I'm this notion that now we're going to, in the midst of this global energy crisis, uh, whole nations are saying we're not going to buy Russian energy to punish Putin for invading Russia. Uh, so we're going to self-sanction ourselves. And what's that going to mean for, for energy production? And what's that going to mean for energy pricing and availability? I, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. The only times we've ever had issues with geopolitics and energy is when energy producers wouldn't sell to energy buyers. Now, now energy buyers are saying, we're not going to buy because we, we feel that this is a, a bad situation and we don't want to support Russia. And I don't know what that means. Well, so now there's so much demand that it could incentivize the people who aren't making as much as they could in the United States. It could incentivize them to it could to start making more because the price would still be high and they can make more. Yeah. And, and that may happen again, though, I think uh, and we spoke about this, I, I know earlier, the, uh, the the issue is, is when we hit the pandemic, production just w- went through the floor. I mean, everybody stopped because nobody knew what was going to happen. And this is one of those things. It's not an on-off switch. You just can't turn it on and turn it off. We've seen this with economies around the world when we locked them down. They just don't turn right back on as they were before. There's all kinds of moving parts here. And so some of the issues that happened with regards to the fracking in the United States was we you know, we lost a lot of the workforce because uh, they just they were unemployed. Uh, and that's And that's a very specialized field. People who work in the energy sector, uh, and a lot of them went on to do other things. A lot of them retired. They took that knowledge with them. It's hard to get uh, that back quickly. Uh, at the same time, prices went so low that uh, a lot of companies did go out of business. Uh, so, yes, I think you're right. This will inspire, I think, a lot of folks in the United States to maybe start investing more, uh, to start going deeper, if you will, seeking capital to do that, to be able to tap those new shale plays. They're a bit more expensive. It will take time, though. Okay, so how much time, say, we decide, you know, the investors decide, oh, let's let's take advantage of this. Or or say, I don't know, Biden did something to somehow encourage fracking, which he probably wouldn't. How long would it take to get the turn the spigot on? Well, it, it would take a, a good amount of time. I would say multiple quarters to get uh, American production uh, ramped up to a point where you would see a significant difference in terms of global availability. Uh, it's happening. The best way to solve a uh, slowdown in the energy sector is to increase pricing. Now, if pricing gets too out of control, though, and the global economy freezes because nobody can afford to pay for the energy, then that could drive the price right back down even below levels that, that people would ever anticipate. So you're, you're kind of in this middle ground, and nobody really knows what's going to happen. Uh, and a lot of a lot of investors are skittish because of the historic historical reality of investing in these plays and and, and not getting a lot of ROI. So uh, I know BlackRock, for example, uh, Larry Fink wrote in his letter to investors for the, for 2022 that they're going to keep investing. The question is, to what extent are they going to keep investing in oil and gas? And a lot of that's going to be determined in terms of how uh, global events play out here in, in the coming weeks and months. But uh, Larry Fink was one of the primary people to push the non-investment in dirty fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. And he's kind of found religion again. And I think that's what's happened with a lot of people is they woke up one day and they said, 1980, 84% of all human energy was carbon. And according to the IEA in 2021, 84% of all energy is carbon, coal, natural gas, or oil. So I think people are waking up from the the stupor that they had that somehow, some way we're going to be able just to leave carbon and transition very quickly, almost overnight, to all of these renewable energy sources. And uh, it, it just it, it just hasn't played out. 
And I think a lot of people were saying that. I mean, I'm, I'm not anybody of, of great intelligence. I could see that a number of years ago that this is going to take decades and maybe even centuries to get out of the carbon age. We just entered the carbon age 100 years ago during World War I. Uh, so to think that somehow we're going to transition out of it with just government subsidies and wishful thinking and little girls screaming at us in Europe telling us how terrible everything is, I just it, that, that's just childish. Tell us where tar sands figure into all this. Well, so even before fracking uh, really took off in the United States, the, the Canadians had figured out people had been extracting oil from sand, you know, the tar sands. It, it, it had been going on for a while. It's a very intensive process, very expensive process. And when oil prices you know, were kind of shooting up in the uh, early part of the century here, uh, you know, the Canadians were able to you know, harness innovation and, and, and better technology to process uh, the, the oil out of the tar sands. It made economic sense. There was capital flowing in. Again, though, everything in, in energy is a function of the, of the price of oil or natural gas. What's the environmental uh, aspects of tar sands? Is it harmful? You, know, you got you to clean it up. That's that's the big issue with with the tar sands. I mean, uh, you know, a fracking well is a very small. Uh, if you've ever seen one you know, come to Eastern Ohio, I'd be happy to show you. They're uh, you know, they're just a little concrete pad, about half the size of a football field, with some pipes coming out of it, and you wouldn't even know it's there unless you stumbled upon it in the woods. Uh, tar sands, though, that's a massive operation, and the environmental impact, if it's not managed right, and the Canadians seem to have been doing a good job with this, and that's one of the reasons I think the cost remains very high, because you have to clean up after yourself once you do all of this, and it's a huge amount of, of land involved, labor-intensive, a lot of water, uh, a lot of residue. So, uh, again, if the price is high enough, people will absorb the uh, the cost because there's still profitability there. But we've been living in an era, uh, really starting with the fracking revolution, where energy has been pretty low. The price of energy has been pretty low, and therefore the tar sands haven't been as attractive as they have been. Now, will they be attractive again if, if, if oil stays consistently at $130, $140, $150 a barrel? You can see investment and activity flowing in that direction. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about the geopolitics? Uh, well, we are talking about geopolitics, but particularly Vladimir Putin. From your point of view, is this the death knell of Putin or will Ukraine be a triumph of Putin putting the Soviet Union back together? I'm not sure he wants to put the Soviet Union back together because that would involve lots of other uh, states now that are firmly in the European Union column as well as NATO's column. I think, though, that you know, Russia is faced with uh, several crises at the same time. One, of course, is the demographic challenge. Their life expectancy is low, and they're just not making babies. And there's a lot of territory they have to defend. So uh, the future for them in terms of being able to put a military in the field, being able to defend their massive borders, and that flat land that is the northern European steppe, that's waning in, in terms of their ability to do that. So uh, I think Putin, number one, is being defensive. I think also that the uh, the expansion of NATO, and I saw this firsthand when I was in Romania, bringing Romania particularly into the European Union and NATO, which pushes those organizations right to the boundaries of Ukraine, which historically has been a buffer for Russia. I think that was viewed by Putin to be something of, of, of an offensive gesture. At the same time, we've been supporting uh, not just in Ukraine, but also in Georgia and in Moldova, which uh, people don't really 
have any concept of, which is right next to Romania, which is surrounded by Ukraine. Uh, we've been pushing for them at least to join the European Union, which means to be more favorable to the West with the possibility that they might join NATO one day. So I think Putin looked at all of this and he was very transparent. He said, I will not let that happen. I don't want nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't want short range missiles. I don't want military bases that close to, to Russian territory. And uh, we wouldn't tolerate that. We didn't tolerate that in the United States in 1962 uh, when missiles were parked in Cuba. Uh, so I, I would be it would be, I think, uh, silly for us to think that, that Putin is going to tolerate that, especially when the messaging is we want to expand NATO. And, and of course, the, the justifications have been about Iran. We're expanding NATO to be able to fight Iranian nuclear ambitions. Nobody bought that. I mean, you know, NATO was constructed about the Soviet Union. It exists now clearly to, to, to be a buffer between the West and, and Russia. And I don't think he's crazy. I think uh, he's, he's, he's talking about what he wants to do and he's doing it. Do you think that this is his death now? I don't know what's happening domestically in Russia. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. I think uh, it's just a very close state. He has a, certainly a cohort of people around him that uh, at least has a degree of confidence in. I think, though, that he, in terms of going to China to get China's blessing in this, that makes this a whole nother level of geopolitics, because now you're talking about a, a very strategic alliance. And I think the other thing that people are forgetting is let's not forget that this is now, in fact, a multinational war. Uh, that Belarus, Belarus is playing a very important role in, in facilitating the, the greater invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops have left uh, Belarus. They've come into Ukrainian territory. Uh, so we are now seeing, you know, not a reconstruction of the Soviet Union per se, but a, an alliance network in Eastern Europe of Belarus, of Ukraine, uh, certainly portions of Ukraine already, probably all of it or big chunks of it eventually, Moldova. So you're seeing a reconstitution of some elements of, of the Soviet state as it existed in that portion of, of the Black Sea region. Is the invasion of Ukraine also showing the weakness of Russia? It could. I, I think, I think again, the timing, uh, the United States will not have constituted, reconstituted its military following the words of Af Afghanistan and Iraq. Probably, I think, till 2028, that was the latest DOD estimate. So he's he's gambling that the United States is weak. Europe doesn't want to do anything, clearly. Europe has no interest to be involved in this at all. Uh, the United States is weak. The United States does not really uh, have any appetite to send American soldiers anywhere to fight. So uh, it might have been a combination of what he thought to be demographic weakness, uh, concern over the expansion uh, of the EU and potentially NATO to his borders, and uh, you know, also the uh, the fact that maybe they're concerned about something that's going on domestically. I, there's a whole lot of factors involved here. I don't think he would have done this unless he would have got uh, China's blessing. Do you think he would have he expected some of the measures of the West, the sanctions, the sure, you know, stopping their their own uh, central bank? Do you think he expected you know to to come through on our threats? Well, again, I think, you know, the economic and financial threats, that's probably where he envisioned we'd, we'd come. Uh, I don't think he, he would have missed that. And I think that's why he went, uh, as he did to China, to say, hey, you know, right before the Olympics, hey, I'm going to do this. What do you think? And I think he got the blessing from Beijing. Because ultimately, there's a lot of support uh, that, that he's going to need to sustain his economy, to sell energy, to do all kinds of things. It's going to come from China now. How do you think things are going to play out? Well, I think a lot of it depends on what, uh, what, what the West does. And I was very disconcerted yesterday when I heard the, uh, the ambassador of uh, Romania uh, went to Moldova uh, and said, we now uh, are going to invite, meaning speaking for the European Union, we are going to invite Georgia, Moldova, and the Ukraine to join the European Union. I think that kind of talk at that limit of Europe and the Russian border 
that kind of talk does nothing except just uh, exacerbate the situation. I don't understand it. I mean, the European Union would have no benefit to having Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia join the EU at this point. There'd be, there'd be no benefit to them. I don't know why they're doing it except just to stick their uh, uh, you know their finger in the cage and, and, and rattle the big bear. And I, I that kind of talk disconcerts me. Now, I, there was a, a good, I think, pushback from at least NATO that said, we're not going to do a no-fly zone because we're not going to shoot at Russian planes, uh, which is good. Although, uh, you know, I go back to the guns of August of, you know, 1914. You know, I mean, everybody thought they could understand all of these leaders in Europe at the onset of World War One. They all thought they could understand very well what everybody else was going to do and how they were all thinking. And, and they all missed it. They all got it wrong. And uh, so this whole notion of hubris, that somehow we can predict what, what, what others will do, and then we'll plan our responses accordingly. I, this, this just gets dangerous. And Again, I was I was very disconcerted, and, and again, I, the American media has been very disappointing. I don't watch a lot of television anyway, uh, or pay attention to the American media. They don't grasp these things. Most reporters couldn't tell you where Ukraine was a week ago, or where Moldova is, or any of those things. Yet, I think when you hear these pronouncements from leading spokespeople for nations that are members of EU and, and NATO, as happened yesterday in Moldova, that's very scary to me because Putin's paying attention to that stuff. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. Well, you spend a lot of time in Panama and the Panama Canal is one of your interests. Uh, Before we end this very interesting interview, Tell us a little bit about the Panama Canal. Yeah, tell us about your book, too. And how the Panama Canal fits in with what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, well, it does. Uh, And I'll just give you a little bit of context here. We built the canal for purposes of avoiding to have to build a two-ocean fleet navy. We wanted, uh, Teddy Roosevelt promised if we had the canal, we'd just have one fleet. Uh, that would be able to transit the canal. And of course, within 25 years after World War II, that was rendered useless because we had a multi-ocean fleet navy after World War II that couldn't use the canal because the ships were too big. And then, of course, we built the uh, the internet interstate highway system. We integrated that with our already existing uh, national railroad system. So really, by the end of World War II, the Panama Canal, from an American perspective, wasn't that important. In fact, Harry Truman said in 1947 as president, why don't we just give the canal away now before we get thrown out? Uh, and, and, and Eisenhower said something similar in the 50s. Carter, of course, did give it away. There was no strategic reason for the United States to keep the canal anymore. We gave it to a dictatorial government, an unelected dictatorial government in Panama. That's how happy we were to get rid of it. And of course, to their credit, with all of the events that occurred in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, the Panamanians have done a brilliant job running the canal. They've made more money on the canal in the last 20 years than the Americans made in the whole time we ran it. So it's yeah they they've been brilliant in running it and uh, and one of the reasons is is that, of course the expanded canal 
which in 2006, the Panamanians held a referendum. Are we going to dedicate a significant billions of dollars, you know, about 15% of all of our GDP in a given year, are we going to dedicate that towards building an expanded canal to handle bigger ships? And the Panamanian people supported it. And the Panamanians did a brilliant job in, in making it happen. My luck, again, nobody predicted it. All of a sudden, the American fracking revolution occurs, and the big LNG ships that are moving liquid natural gas all over the world, particularly from the East Coast of the United States to Asia, now could fit in the expanded uh, canal lock, where before they wouldn't have been able to fit. And again, that was just kind of a coalescence of luck. Uh, And again, if you call, what's the old adage, uh, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation, you know, we'll we'll call them lucky then, uh, the Panamanians. And of course, the American frackers were lucky too, because now we could move our energy to those biggest uh, LNG recipient nations, China, Japan, and, and South Korea. You know, the question is, what about the future of the canal? I think it's much more about energy. The European construction, as Germany is now announcing, building LNG terminals, that probably won't impact the canal because we'll be able to ship directly from the Gulf Coast to, to Europe without having to transit the canal. I can tell you, though, with uh, energy demand rising, agricultural demand too, that's a big amount of, of, of traffic through the canal is is Argentine and Brazilian agricultural products to Asia. That category is rising. So in terms of food and energy, which I think are going to be more important going forward than consumer goods, those two categories, the canal is very well positioned for moving product from the Americas uh, to Asia, which is going to be incredibly in demand for those two sectors of economy. Do you think that in five years, we'll look back on what happened in Ukraine We'll look back on the Panama Canal and we'll say that was when the ship sailed for the green movement. Yeah, I I think we're we're entering a period here where reality is is going to hit hit a lot of people in the face. Uh, reality with regards to energy and the green movement kind of just fading away is. And I'm not saying that we don't need investment in, in new new sources of energy. We need all kinds of energy. Uh, as, as people get richer in the world, as the middle class uh, rises, we need more energy, not less energy. And I hope we can get it from every source possible, including nuclear, which which is something that we've forsaken here. I think, though, that the, the, the big story, and we're missing it, I still think, is that the United States is incredibly reluctant at a national level to intervene around the world. That, that message is abundantly clear. It's been clear for more than a decade, I think potentially two decades. And in the United States, whether it's going to be with Ukraine and the invasion of it, the significant invasion of it by Russia, whether it would be a move uh, on Taiwan by China or a conflict in, in the Gulf between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, as an example, you know, look at the flashpoints around the world. I just think that the nations of the world realize that the United States is simply just not going to be the policeman of the world anymore, that the American people do not have the stomach to send their soldiers and their treasure to fight in faraway places. Because of Afghanistan and Iraq, you're saying? Well, I, I think that's part of it. I think that kind of put a lid on it. I think, though, that it was already happening. I think that probably pushed it across the finish line. I mean, look at the public opinion polling. Everybody was embarrassed the way we left Afghanistan. Almost to a person in this country, though, nobody was upset we're gone. Nobody's standing up and screaming, why are we, why are, I was upset we left. And I think everybody was, the way that we left, how we left. Uh, but we're gone and everybody's happy with that decision. And I think that we are now entering a period where the world had counted on the United States for decades to be that intervening force to keep the peace in regional conflicts around the world. And that's ended. And that's not coming back. You're not going to get elected president of the United States, and you're not going to get elected to Congress by standing up and saying, let's go send our soldiers to defend Ukraine or Taiwan or Iran. 
I know, but it it seems like you're sort of jinxing it by saying it's not coming back. I, I hope the thing that would bring it back is some catastrophe, like a real catastrophe, like a World War III. That would bring it back. So let's hope that. Well, let's yeah, let, uh, you, you, be careful what you wish for, too. But I, I think the nations of the world have already figured this out. You look at military spending as a, as a percentage of it that's American versus the rest of the world. Uh, throughout the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War, average military spending by the United States of all uh, global military spending was about 60%. And that's gone down even below 40% now. The nations of the world are spending a lot more on their, on their armaments. Why are they doing that? Because they realize that we need to be defending ourselves. The Americans aren't going to do it. And when that starts happening, you combine that with scarcer energy resources, with greater pressure to secure agriculture supplies. You see nations building up their navies. You see nations building up their defensive and offensive capabilities. You kind of return to history. And we've been living in this wonderful period of the last, uh, certainly the last 30 years, you could argue even the post-war era, the last 80 years, where major nation states have not gone to war, where we've had really unlimited prosperity for the planet. And you just wonder if that was a unique period and we're going to enter back into a period which I think is going to be much more dangerous, much more unpredictable, and much more violent. And I think the Americans are going to, we'll sell people guns, we'll sell them energy, we'll sell them consumer goods, we'll sell them whatever. But I don't think the Americans are going to go around the world, you know, chasing enemies. You just, you know, go back to the Cold War period. We fought a a tie in Korea and lost almost 60,000 men. We fought a losing war in Vietnam. And yet in that period, there was still consensus in this country that communism was an evil that needed to be confronted around the world. Even after the debacle in Vietnam, we still, as a nation, overwhelmingly, the American people supported politicians who wanted to fight against communism and and would do whatever it took to intervene and reduce communism spread. That consensus on anything now, including terrorism, is gone. What we found was what we found was that communism destroyed itself. It did. Well, we helped a little bit, I think. Yet at the same time, that consensus is, is gone. And, and I don't see a politician coming on board and getting elected by saying, let's go fight this ideology or that ideology. And, and a lot of it is also uh, enforced by the fact of our energy security. We don't, right. we don't so we have, have that. Go- we do have that as nice leverage. Which we didn't have throughout most of the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We didn't have that. So this now gives the Americans breathing space to say, okay, do we really need to be involved here or there? Before we had to be involved everywhere. Just that, to sure. That's why I ask you if the green movement basically has reached its peak. No, I, they can't have reached its peak. There's always going to be. No, I'm not saying there won't be people who are going to argue for the importance of eliminating pollution. But the idea that somehow green energy is going to replace carbon fuel, don't you think that ship has sailed, so to speak? Well, and I think the nail on that coffin was the, uh, what, what, the, what the Europeans announced on January 1st this year, when the European Union came out and, and reclassified natural gas as a renewable, very quietly in the middle of the holiday season, uh, because they know. The Europeans who were leading the charge to get rid of fossil fuels by 2030 and 2040 and 2050, they realize that that's just it's just not possible. And it's it's not that again that we don't need other energy sources. And governments are spending money to do research. And and you know I'm excited about hydrogen as a possibility. Uh, and nuclear could come back. Nuclear could come back as it should. Uh, you know again a, a prosperous, stable world has energy coming from lots of different sources. I think though. When you have over 80% of all energy is still carbon, that notion that somehow we're just going to wish it away 
and replace it with unproven, expensive, unreliable technologies. That, that, that was just, again, that was politicians and particular interest groups, you know, pushing a narrative that uh, just wasn't rooted in reality. Oftentimes, it takes terrible uh, events to, to convince us that reality is, is what it is. <laughs> and we were, I think we're living through that time right now. Also, the fact that politicians may wake up or have already awakened to the fact that when you ask public opinion, what are the 10 most important issues in America, climate never appears on that list. Is that true? Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the case for most of the world, except in your... You sure do hear about it in the media, though. The media has plenty of it about climate. Yeah. Well, and again, I think the, uh, you know, the, where are the voters at? I mean, I, the, if you look at how voters vote, they vote their pocketbook. And that's generally the case in most democracies. So when energy is cheap, uh, you know, they, they can entertain discussions about, you know, maybe replacing carbon. But now that we're all paying, you know, near four bucks a gallon and might be paying a lot more this uh, later spring and summer, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be like, let's get the, let's get the energy prices down. However, you got, however, you got to do it. And the way to do that is, is to better manage carbon. It's going to be an interesting time going forward. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I just think that, I, and you mentioned it before, we we think we can predict and there's going to be something in, in a year where we go, oh my God, we, we were so wrong. We were just ridiculously wrong. And again, I the thing, you know, is the pandemic as well. Uh, you know, the virus, is, it hasn't gone away yet. You know, if we did an interview with a guy right before, right when it was starting, right before it came to the U.S., and he's like, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. You know, and I was like, what's the worst case scenario? He's like, well, I don't know, the apocalypse. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, within months, everything was locked down. It was like, you think you know everything. You know, this was a supposed supply chain expert. Well, and again, I, and who knows? I, the, the virus is still there. This is a naturally occurring event at this point. I, mean, I don't know where the virus came from. The point is, though, it's out there. It's evolving, which is what it does in nature. And as I, I think I mentioned, uh, nature gets last bats. So nature is going to tell us when the pandemic's over. Not the Democratic Party, not the uh, not the people who've been controlling, uh, you know, the narrative. Uh, not not the the governors in particular states, the CDC or the WHO. Nature is going to tell us when this is over. And uh, it's the virus hasn't gone away. And, and my concern is is if you look at the plateaus after the alpha wave, it, when it really went down. The, uh, the amount of cases was almost nil. Then Delta hit and the amount of cases was higher than it was at the end than it was in Alpha. And if you look at the number of cases globally today with Omicron, there's more cases today than there have been post-Delta, post-Alpha, which tells you that this thing's still circulating. And it could choose a, a, a different variant. It could choose a, a, certainly a, a variant like Omicron or something less, or it could choose a variant that's much more virulent and potentially lethal. That everybody knows you can't catch it in the summer. So. Summer's almost yeah, here. We're, that's right. we're thank God we're fine. <laughs> let's hope. Let's hope. So I mean, there's that that element just sitting out there as well. So you got war, rumor of war, energy shocks. Uh, agriculture is going to be agriculture shocks big time because of the energy shocks. There already are, and then uh, yeah, you later on a pandemic. I mean, these are crazy times for sure. Well, Andrew, this was so much fun. Thank you, and this was what we what we needed to learn about this week. Next week, we're probably going to go, oh, my God, we could have never predicted that. So I, I don't know. That's why life is keeps it interesting. It does. It does keep it interesting. That's for sure. Do you have anything else to say to the people of the world? Uh, yes. Keep your head down. You know, get out of debt. <laughs> keep your head down. Chin up, head down. Yeah, chin down, get out of debt. You know, live simply. 
you know, <laughs> just you know, basic things your your dad would have told you all those years ago, I'm sure. Go to Panama, yeah. enjoy, the enjoy the sun, play golf, hug your, enjoy life. Hug your wife and kids. Tell them you love them. It's an important thing right now. All right. On that note, yeah. thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.